You are listening to Sparking Wholeness with Erin Carey, where we talk about all things related to nutrition for mind, body, and soul. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Sparking Wholeness. Today, I am sitting down with Dr. Christine Gibson. She is a family physician, trauma therapist, and author of the Modern Trauma Toolkit. She's also on social media as TikTok Trauma Doc with over 130,000 followers on TikTok. She has a master's in medical education, is halfway through a doctorate, and has been involved in academics and education, creating Calgary's Fellowship in Health Equity. She runs an international nonprofit, Global Family Med Foundation, a cooperative and a new company to train professionals how to manage workplace trauma, safer spaces training. So this, I'm so excited to welcome you to the podcast, Dr. Gibson. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. And Christy is fine. Okay, <laughs> great. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm on just... TikTok. I am the least formal person, <laughs> right? Well, I don't even have a TikTok, so I was looking for you on Instagram. I'm like, exactly. oh no, this is I I have not gotten into that world because TikTok or Instagram is enough for my my brain <laughs> to handle. So yes, I but I'm for those who are on TikTok, I'm so excited for you to be a resource because I know you are putting incredible information out there that people need to hear. I hope so. I really like. I mean, it's been over two years now, so I'm I'm pretty committed to to mental health education on there. Um, I cross post a little bit to Instagram, but, um, I, for the same videos, I'll get like 20 views on one and like 2000 on the other. So it's, it just hasn't been the right venue for me. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit just about your background and why you've decided to focus so much on trauma. How does trauma play a role in your work as a medical doctor? Yeah, it's a good question. And I wouldn't have had the same answer 10 years ago. So um, I did inpatient hospitalist for the first 16 years of my career and did very much the job of like an internal medicine doc. But I worked in um, a community of equity deserving populations. So lots of immigrants and refugees, people with very low income. And um, I did start to make that connection around uh trauma and social conditions affecting both physical and mental health mm-hmm. because we were seeing like we were actually have to do social admissions like people who um had a physical thing and then nobody to take care of them or they had uh, a mental health problem and it was activating something that had happened in the past so i started to put the pieces together a little bit then but it wasn't until i started working as a community based family doctor that it all came together for me um, what I started to research was a paper that came out, um, the very same year that I graduated medical school. So I didn't get to learn about it. Then it took me 20 years to like backtrack and find it. And it was done in California. It's called the ACE study. And what they did is they took a bunch of people at the Kaiser Permanente, um, clinics and they ran them through a survey to see how many of them had been through childhood trauma. And they chose 10 things. So, some people are using this survey as a screening test, but they didn't cover everything. But what they did uncover was like super remarkable. For every single, what they called an ACE or an adverse childhood experience, there was an exponential increase in every single physical, mental, and social ill health condition that they measured. And so we're talking things like cancer, diabetes, heart disease, but also depression, anxiety, 
um, OCD personality, like every single thing that they measured had an exponential increase. So if you had gone through six adverse childhood experiences, that would lower your life expectancy. And once I read that paper, I couldn't unsee it. I was seeing trauma and screening for trauma in all of my existing family practice patients and finding it everywhere because I worked in um in a in a community health center that was very much designed for people who were placed at vulnerability. And once I saw it everywhere, I was like, okay, well, what, what am I going to do about it? We had mental health resources, but they were more like changing behaviors. Like how could you eat better? How could you sleep better? And it wasn't processing trauma. So mm. I realized I had to be that resource. So I trained for probably three years before I started doing trauma processing for my own patients. And all of a sudden people were managing their diabetes. People were, um, like actually caring about their physical bodies because so many of them had dissociated from their physical yeah. bodies, wishing they didn't have one because of what it had been through. Mm -hmm. And then all of the other physicians started consulting me and saying, Hey, could you help me with the trauma in my patients? And I thought, you know, this particular resource in Canada, it's not a free one, but me as a physician, I'm free. So now I work in trauma therapy at our refugee clinic and adult addictions and to me, it's the root cause of so much suffering. And you don't even have to identify as having had trauma, but with all of us going through a pandemic, you know, the, the pain of the climate emergency, mm -hmm. um, our ancestral traumas and pre-verbal traumas. Like for me, I had a conversation with my mom once and I said, you know, I, I don't identify a lot of trauma in childhood, but we recognize that being Ukrainian and being Scottish my ancestors had come from genocide and um, she told me that the umbilical cord was wrapped around my neck three times when I was born. I obviously don't have a conscious memory of that, but there's something in me that believes the world isn't safe. Mm. Um, there's something in me that is stuck in that moment of like, oh my gosh, I came from this warm, soothing, connected environment into pain immediate pain and fear. Mm -hmm. So like, how is that stuck in my mind body system? So these questions to me are at the root of so much existential pain and ecosystem pain. And I just don't think there's anything more important that we could be talking about. 100%. Yes. I resonate with so much of what you said. And as far as that ancestral trauma, there's racial trauma that uh, many are carrying too. And that is something that we don't talk about enough. I think that that's important, especially the people that um, may have, I, I think about people that may have passed for white, you know, there are people who have ancestors who were passing, I'm putting air quotes, yeah. and they are carrying the trauma of hiding who they are. And mm. I, I just, I think about how that plays a role in so much, like to your point about our ancestors who are immigrants. And I mean, there's just so much there. I'm so glad that you touched on even the dissociation aspect of things. Of course, we want to cut off that connection from our minds and our bodies when we go through traumatic experiences because it's protective, yeah. but it shows up in the body. Yeah. Well, and I, I love how you just framed that. Like, I think that was a really important point you made, Erin, was that all of these things that our mind body does is done in, in the interest of protection. So 
When I started studying things like CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, the, the premise was, well, there's something wrong with how you're thinking and we need to fix it. So you're kind of adding a dash of shame to a person who's already feeling a lot of shame. But I love how you framed it as everything is protective or adaptive. Like adaptive, the reason yeah. that you're dissociating or the reason that you're in fight and flight is because your body still feels the need to protect you. And it's such a nice framework. And so I love when people are able to frame it in that way, because so much of what we have in medical and mental health is based on like, who's blaming, who's responsible without saying, well, why does it make sense that these things are happening? Hmm. Yeah, it, it even makes me wonder about the mental health conditions that we diagnose and the things that we label. And I really want to pick your brain on that. But before we do, this is an excellent place to pause and thank our sponsor for today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Trumetta. Trumetta is a premium supplement company based out of California that strives to make self-care easy. One of their great products that I have been loving is mushroom coffee. It is a must for your morning routine, for your mid-morning routine, for your early afternoon routine. It tastes delicious. There's no mushroom aftertaste. So when I say mushroom coffee, listen, this is coffee, but it has the benefits that mushrooms bring. For example, lion's mane mushroom can help with productivity, Reishi mushroom helps with immune support and even managing the stress response. Cordyceps boost energy. And of course, because it is real coffee, guys, <laughs> it has caffeine to give you the kick that you need every day. You can start your day healthier with Trumetta mushroom coffee and see for yourself how it helps you focus so you can get stuff done. Not gonna lie, I was at work the other day. My husband and I worked together at a counseling and wellness center and I saw that my husband has had taken taken some with him to work for his post-lunch warm drink that he typically has just to keep focused because I mean let's be real counselors therapists need to get focused <laughs> they're helping people with some heavy stuff if you're like me and Richard my husband you will feel an uptake in your productivity and your focus every single time you drink it Trumetta offers their best deal to date only to my show fans you will get get this a free electric mixer and 40% off the coffee plus free shipping in the U.S. So go right now to trumetta.com spark to fuel your productivity and creativity with some delicious mushroom coffee. That's T-R-U-M-E-T-A dot com slash spark. Now getting back to the concept of asking the question, why does it make sense that these things are happening to somebody's body and brain, whether it's a medical issue, mental health issue. So this is where I want to pick your brain. Do you believe that these diagnoses that we give people, can they all be traced back to trauma or that protection in some way? Um, we had talked um, <laughs> before the podcast about Gower Mate, and I know that that is um, his opinion that it's that the root of most mental Ill, Ill health, including things like ADHD, all addictions, I have a slightly more tempered opinion. I, I think it's, it's often involved. And mm -hmm. I think the medical community misses the boat when we don't look for trauma. And again, I don't think we should be trying to seek the details of the story of trauma, but even just whether the person identifies and help them explore things like 
racism, as you mentioned, or medical trauma and ableism, like we actually cause a lot of trauma. So a lot mm -hmm. of folks who come into our office irritable or they're what we call non-compliant, it's often that they just don't have a safe and trusting relationship with mm -hmm. the medical profession. Like we've harmed them. So like offering invitations to explore these really complex topics, I, I think is really helpful. I personally have yet to meet typically a woman diagnosed with borderline personality who doesn't have a background of extensive complex trauma. Mm -hmm. So I personally find there's a lot of overlap in those two diagnoses and, and medical personnel miss the boat there. But have I seen a person with anxiety or ADHD or autism who doesn't have a background of trauma? I have. Um, because I work in trauma therapy at the addiction clinic, I'm sent all the people with trauma, mm -hmm. but in the folks who are managing addiction alone, they do not believe that every single one of them has a background of serious trauma. So I, I think it's more of the story than we ascribe to, but I think the story is complex and multi-layered. So I wish that physicians and psychologists were better at unearthing the trauma underneath the presentation um, and that we wouldn't just take a DSM diagnosis at face value because the way that I see it is once I see a person, I will treat trauma um, for as long as it takes until it looks like they're out of fight, flight, and freeze. And then I would diagnose a DSM, you know, condition, mm -hmm. but until we've treated trauma, I think it's too early. So mm -hmm. that's the way that I see it. I like that. And it, it sounds like you're taking not an either or approach, but a both and approach. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's really important this day and age um, because we're polarizing everything. So <laughs> I, I love that approach. And I'd love to know, um, maybe you could give a breakdown on polyvagal theory and how that contributes to trauma and even healing from the trauma response. Yeah. And I said the words fight, flight, freeze, but what I really do mean is like these polyvagal responses because they overlap. Um, I had never heard of polyvagal theory until I was working in the community health center and I started to explore trauma a bit more. Um, I had a personal reason for exploring trauma. If I'm totally honest, I was caught in the earthquakes in Nepal, which you would have read about in my book. And I, I did have some physical trauma stored in my body and a few extra fears that were unlocked. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was reading quite a bit about it. And what I was missing was polyvagal. So um, uh, Saima was a friend of mine at the community health center, and she had done a huge deep dive into what happens in her physical body with trauma. And I will, you know, just say from the beginning that there is some controversy around the theory because the original version that Stephen Porges talked about polyvagal theory was um, not necessarily physiologically correct. He would say that the parasympathetic nervous system caused the heart rate to slow down and for the sympathetic systems, like the opposite things. Mm -hmm. um, and was it where it turned out is it actually just slows down the sympathetic, which has the same effect. So there was a lot of people who kind of took umbrage with how he presented polyvagal theory and said, well, this is scientifically incorrect. But I think they're really throwing the baby out with the bathwater because clinically this theory is so useful. And mm -hmm. I'm sure your listeners will agree. Um, the idea is that when we're exposed to toxic stress or trauma, 
our physiology, like, because we are just like any other mammal, we're like a dog or a horse or any other mammal that goes through stress, we go into fight or flight. And that means that we want to run away from our problems, which we all know what that looks like. It could look like, you know, a bottle of wine every week because, or every, every night for a week, because we're trying to turn our brain off, or it can look like changing relationships every six months or changing jobs really often because we're trying to run away from our problem, but we bring our problem everywhere we go. Um, and fight looks like anger, irritability. Um, it looks like, uh, just being non-satisfied everywhere you go. Like there's a problem everywhere and nothing is feeling congruent because what we're feeling inside is this fight energy. Um, and that takes a lot of energy to be in fight and flight because it's it's an energy of activity, of motion. So our sympathetic nervous system is something we use at every moment of the day. I'm in it right now because I'm moving my hands and I'm moving my mouth. So sympathetic just means movement. And so it gives us the energy to our muscles and our heart. So a lot of people will say, well, I have to get out of sympathetic. I'm like, well, you'll be in a coma. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when sympathetic is in overdrive, that's when we're locked in that fight and free at fight and flight, but it is so tiring because it's an energy of movement. So when we're exhausted and we've overwhelmed that is when we tip into the overwhelm of the parasympathetic. So parasympathetic in our normal, not stressed at all state just means we are connected to others. And we use the cues of our vagus nerve that feeds our face, which means facial expression, tone of voice in order to feel safe. So Stephen calls that ventral vagus and ventral just means front. So it's the vagus nerve or cranial nerve 10 that is in charge of facial movements and, you know, contributes to ear and voice box. So when we're in social engagement, we are fully present. We are comfortable. We are calm. The parasympathetic of overwhelm is the dorsal vagal or the back body vagus. And that's the vagus nerve that they call the wandering nerve. And it winds through the chest, the abdominal cavity, and it slows down sympathetic, but it can slow it down too much. So when I'm seeing a patient who can't get off the couch, can't get out of bed, can't get things done in a day, I start to wonder, hey, are you stuck in freeze? Mm. So freeze is like the opossum, like the one who just plays dead puts their head in the sand to, to mix metaphors of animals, but animals do this. Animals mm -hmm. play possum, animals put their head in the sand. And so do humans. When we are overwhelmed, we just kind of play dead and hope that the problem goes away and we can get caught in that. And I think a lot of people do. Um, it, it just, it's really hard to connect. It's hard to move. It's hard to get things done that you want to do. And physicians misdiagnose free state as non-compliant patients or yeah. people who don't show, and they don't get curious about what's underlying that. Mm. I'm so glad you touched on free state. I, my opinion is that it's probably one of the most difficult states to get out of. It's one thing to calm the nervous system, but it's another thing to 
I don't know, bring it back up, bring it out. Cause I'm a chronic that my history is I started out what I would consider, we called it depression, but I would consider major freeze mode back um, in middle school, leading up into high school. And then that led into some hypomania after I was medicated. I mean, you know, and so I, I very much have experienced every nervous system state (laughs) that there is every, every polyvagal state. So do you have some strategies for, for people who are more prone to freeze, especially this time of year, right? Cause I think that it's kind of where we, we get it the most. Yeah. And it's so funny you asked that because I just did a video on TikTok in December because so many people mm-hmm. were asking that question, how do I get up and, or how do I get my day accomplished when I'm stuck in freeze? Um, some, one person actually said, it's so hard for me to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a common feeling. I mean, some mm-hmm. of it can be seasonal. So the holidays can be a really hard time or the aftermath of the holidays and a lot of relational trauma can show up or loneliness. And then there's the seasons, you know, just having these really short days for a lot of us can be super hard on the brain chemistry. Um, So just kind of looking at your environment and seeing how much of those external things are playing a part. Um, Deb Dana is the clinician. She's a clinical social worker who works closely with Stephen Porges in the Polyvagal Institute. And she has this diagram of a ladder, which I kind of emulated in my book because I think it's really useful. But the idea is that the bottom of the ladder is when you're stuck. And I depicted... um, Well, the illustrator I worked with, Christina, she depicted a person who's just stuck in the mud. And for you to even think about climbing a ladder seems impossible because Mm -hmm. first you have to extricate your feet and they're (laughs) stuck in mud. And Uh so the whole thing just seems completely overwhelming. But the idea is to try to move really, really slowly. So slow movement is actually the thing that wakes up your sympathetic nervous system And sometimes I'll say if a person's really stuck is just imagine it. So imagine yourself getting the thing done that you need to get done. Imagine yourself walking out the door and going to get groceries. Imagine yourself like giving your kid a bath. And the more that you imagine it, the parts of your brain that create those movements will actually activate as if you've done that thing. Mm. Our brains are amazing that way. So the the goal of recovery is always neuroplasticity or rewiring the brain. And you can start rewiring with imagination. And one of my favorite ways to process trauma is using imagination. Um, imagery and metaphor are such powerful ways to rewire the brain and cause the neuroplasticity. So imagining movement can be a place to start if somebody's really stuck. And then really small amounts of movement. So instead of accomplishing all of your tasks, what would 10% of that solution look like? And then pick the stuff that's actually going to make you feel joyful and connected. So if walking the dog in nature is something that like makes you feel connected to trees and helps you breathe fresh air and makes you laugh at your dog and gets you more connected to them as a being, that's probably a good place to start. And maybe you don't get the dishes done that day, but walking the dog will give you so much more of that playful ventral vagal energy Mm. that then the nervous system will start to wake up and rewire itself. So those, those are kind of my starting points. And actually I missed a really important one. The first one is compassion, Mm. Mm self-compassion. So a huge fan of the work of Kristen Neff, but 
starting with self-compassion and saying, it makes sense that my body is trying to protect me in these ways. And I'm so glad that my body is trying to protect me. And I probably don't need quite this much protection right now. So I'm going to wake it up in these ways. And starting with that framework, I think is so much more generative than saying, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? I can't get stuff done because then you're adding shame to the shame that's already stuck. Yeah. And on the, I'm so glad you're just leading right into all these questions. I want to ask you. I love it on the topic (laughs) of shame, because I think that trauma does a dance with shame because we think of all those things that we should have done differently or could have done differently, or I could have changed the scenario this way, or we want to rewrite the story. And then there's shame in suffering from some of these symptoms of our body trying to protect us. We feel shame about that. So I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, your process of leaving behind the box of shame. Oh yeah. I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, Erin, that's a really lovely one to frame. I actually just used this technique yesterday. Um, so when I studied somatic techniques, these were things that I did not understand as a physician. And it took a lot of like my, um, curiosity and humility to be able to like open up to say, well, what are these things? And to start to explore it. But I now understand tapping or self acupressure to be an evidence-based treatment of PTSD, which is pretty exciting because it used to just get kind of tossed aside as energy, you know, energy medicine, but wow, why does this work? Um, So this was actually a skill I learned in tapping. So I will do self acupressure with my patients to help them learn how to turn the volume dial down on intensity of emotional or physical pain. So I love this as a tool. And I studied the container method in tapping, but I actually use it with other somatic or body-based techniques. Um, So the container method is using something that calms the nervous system down. So for me, it's either tapping or havening. Both of these have full chapters in my book and a video to explain what those are. Um, Havening is basically just creating calm brain waves. So once the body feels calmer, then you can start to change the mind. And the container is one of those metaphors that I, I kind of touched on earlier but you basically have the patient create a box and the details of the box matters. What color is it? What texture? Was it made of metal or wood or cardboard? How is it sealed? Is it old or new? Is it heavy? Um, you know, how is it locked? How is it held together? Um, and then we put something inside that they don't have to look at. And oftentimes what we put inside is shame. So this is shame that doesn't belong to you. And you don't have to believe that it belongs to your parents, but you might, you might understand that there's a long lineage of shame that was never yours and it needs to be um, discarded. It needs to be given away because you've been carrying it and it's really heavy on you. So then we think how heavy is the box now that there's all the shame in it. And for some people, they choose to leave it at their parents' house, that that's the right place for it to be, or a grandparent. Sometimes people deliver it to a person or a system that's harmed them. So some people might leave it at a hospital. Some people might leave it at work. And others, they believe that it's like this thing that we all carry, because we all carry these emotions, and we all carry shame. And in those cases, it might be more appropriate to bury it somewhere or drop it in the sea or to shoot it into space and just say, 
you know, let's let this go collectively because this is something that none of us need to keep carrying. So we think of where that right place is. So we do the body-based technique to calm the nervous system down. And then we use the container um, to set up that metaphor in the mind. And it's amazing because as I described the brain, when it thinks of an activity will actually start rewiring. And with the container method, people can let go of tremendous psychological burdens. So I just think it's so powerful what the mind-body system is already designed to do. And I love how this method will use both the power of the brain and the power of the body to do self-healing because mm -hmm. the mind-body was designed to heal itself. Mm -hmm. We've just forgot a lot of these ancestral practices like acupressure. This is 10,000 year old Chinese medicine. Um, and we can harness what we now know to recover. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you touched on tapping because I, sometimes I've mentioned tapping with people as a soothing technique and they're like, what's some woo woo stuff, you know, <laughs> like what is that going to do? But it absolutely makes a difference. And, and how yeah. would you, I'd love for you to ex expand on that just a little bit for somebody who's listening to this and isn't as familiar with tapping. Can you share the way that you use it, use it with your, with your patients? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so trauma recovery has three phases. The first one is establishing safety. So this is Judith Herman's theories from 40, 50 years ago. And I'm a huge fan of that model because then it helps people understand where they're at. So the first phase is establishing safety and it's basically nervous system rewiring. So turning that volume dial down on the signals that are telling you that you're still in danger. I mean, frankly, some people are still in danger and they need to have some of that activation. But for a lot of us, we want to leave the past in the past. And so phase one of trauma recovery is figuring out what that looks like. And I love somatic body-based practices for phase one, because a lot of what's stuck is nervous system tone. So that sympathetic or fight and flight or the parasympathetic dorsal vagal freeze, we can shift so much of that through our physiology. So tapping is a great um, useful tool in that, in that phase. Phase two is trauma processing, which is basically taking the memory and changing it changing the associations to the memory. So our amygdala is the fire alarm center. It tells us when our mind body is in danger and when we've already been in something dangerous, which I mean, frankly, the air we breathe right now is dangerous. So our <laughs> system is, is constantly saying like, Hey, is that safe? I don't know. Or if you've been through relational trauma where a person hurts you, then we're constantly looking to see who else could be a threat. And so what we want to do is just to turn that system down so it's not harming us. Because when our amygdalas are constantly alert, it takes a lot of time and space and energy out of things that we would prefer to be doing. So what we want to do is just turn that down to a level that we prefer. So we're still looking out for danger, but just not as actively. So trauma processing takes the associations out of the amygdala for all of the things that it thinks of as dangerous. And it just neutralizes them. So if you have a context of a person and a place and an emotion that feels unsafe to you, how could we turn that down so that you're not constantly in protection mode? So there's a lot of things to do for trauma processing. My favorite tool is accelerated resolution therapy, which is similar to EMDR, mm -hmm. but you can also use tapping for process oh. work and people do that. 
phase three is, okay, well, who am I outside of all of these baked in trauma reflexes? So when my amygdala isn't driving the car, who am I even? <laughs> so it's figuring out how do you relate to the world when you're not constantly seeing threats everywhere, including inside your own body. And that phase can take a really long time. And this journey isn't linear. A lot of people go back and forth between the phases, but per, in my particular practice, I tend to use tapping the most in phases one and two. Some people use it for processing, as I mentioned, but I tend to do it like, what would it look like to feel safe in your body? And we do these tapping sequences for a person to just dial that volume down. So if you're coming in with anxiety, that's like a 10 out of 10, because you were in a car accident, for example, what we would do is we would use tapping, not necessarily on the car accident itself, because that would be phase two, but just on like, what kinds of things could you imagine doing that would we could move the volume on feeling safe. So could you imagine um, having a ton of fun on a train ride? Can you remember a time when you took something that got you from A to B and the journey itself was really fun and distracting? Let's really go back into that memory so that you imagine that you can get places in a safe way. And we would... Um, accentuate the pleasure and the enjoyment from the memory, or we would create one. We would say, what would it look like to be a kid on a Disney cruise? Or are you a person who likes um, rides in an amusement park? And we would imagine something like that. Um, could you imagine the train that goes between where I live here in Calgary to Vancouver? And let's imagine a journey through the mountains I want you to notice the clouds that are drifting by. I want you to spot a deer in the woods and notice that they're looking at you with these soft, beautiful eyes. And we would invoke this calm imagery and this soothing, gentle rocking of a train. So we would create new material where a person can neutralize some of the associations that they've created protective strategies around. I love that. And so much of that is I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a lot in, in a good way, <laughs> just realizing there, there are so many solutions, you know, we've talked about EMDR on the show before, and I personally have gone through EMDR myself and I love it, but some of these other strategies that you're talking about might be new and are for somebody who's just wanting to get started to understanding, you know, how to support their nervous system better you would recommend your book as a starting place for all of these tools? I really would. I, I designed the book as to be um, a place to get through phase one. So mm -hmm. how could you start to feel more calmness in your nervous system? Because it's really hard to start trauma therapy when you're stuck in freeze, yes. as, as you would relate yes. to. And it's also really hard to start when you're stuck in fight and flight or when you're using addictions as your coping strategy mm -hmm. and, and you're really locked in those patterns. So what I'm trying to do is to just give people their, um, their power back because they always had it. We've always had more agency and more ability to shift our nervous system, but we've forgotten about these things ancestrally. So there's so many ways that we can learn the skills to shift our own system. We didn't even touch on something like tremoring, which is just mm. releasing all of that sympathetic tone and the tension that your body hangs on to. That's such a powerful thing to do. And once you've done that, you know, 
couple times a week for a month or two and your body starts to relax, then you can get yourself out of fight and flight. So there's so many tools, um, even just singing and making playlists because humming will vibrate your vagus nerve. So there are so many ways that are very easily accessible to every person. And so I wrote the book in a really accessible way and said, hey, these are things that you can try to build your own toolkit because the same things aren't going to work for every person. But within this huge kit that I assembled, you're going to find something. So that was really the goal was to help explain what happens to the mind body when you've been through stress and trauma. And for people who don't necessarily relate to trauma, toxic stress is something they probably relate to. Yeah. Um, And just give them a language where they could understand it better. A lot of the books that are out there are really brilliant, but they might be written at an academic level Mm -hmm. or they might be really triggering because they're written for professionals. And when you read it and you've been through something yourself, it can really be hard to go through. So I tried to write one that solved those problems. It was basically the book when I started to be a trauma therapist that I wished I could you know, yeah. recommend to patients, but now I just give it to them. Absolutely. No, I, I agree with that. And um, as far as triggering, uh, body keeps the score was pretty triggering for me to I've heard read. that from a lot of people. Even <laughs> and chapter actually, one can be triggering. Oh my goodness. I, I listened to it on audio on the way to a girl's trip and it was probably oh three gosh. hours of audio lit. By the time I got there, I was like, I was so mad at how oh everything is treated. And it would just put me in such a negative mindset mind space. Just, I'm a former teacher. I spent um, over a decade working with English as a second language students. And so I saw a lot of kids who are, you know, immigrants to Texas. I live in Texas and the, you know, racism and the, I mean, like the freeze, talk about freeze mode and all the things that they encountered being new. Like it just, it was very, that book was rough for me. So I love that you've created something that is more for the person who's just wanting to start their healing journey. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, and is it, a toolkit. it gives you a bit of a roadmap because everyone's journey is different. So that's why I call it a personalized toolkit because there is no one way to go through all this stuff. Um, but there's, there's lots of different ways. And the opposite of trauma isn't being happy all the time because literally no human mm-hmm. is that that's not our human journey. It's having flexibility. So not being stuck in freeze, not being stuck in flight. And so providing that flexibility means that the journey can't look the same for everybody. So trying different things to see, well, what is actually going to work for me? Now, I'd love to ask you a question that I do hear a lot as, as we're finishing up. And that is, but what if it's too late? You know, I am this year's old, I don't know, throw out a number there. And I've gone through, I've made it this far. My life is fine. My kids are fine. Everybody's fine. Why, why do I need to work on this? What, what benefit is it to me? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I I think if, if you're not being affected on a daily basis by um, the trauma that the world has experienced, and maybe you have um, felt like you've processed for one thing, you being a teacher, I think every single child should learn these tools. So for parents to learn these tools, to teach their children, emotional regulation. Mm. Um, like the reason I joined TikTok was because Gen Z is, a, is expressing a lot of frustration and anger and resentment at this world that they're inheriting yep. and learning emotional regulation tools and tolerating distress and tolerating 
these huge challenges that they face was super critical. So I just think these are foundational skills that everyone should be taught. We should be teaching them in school. So something to help with your with your kids and with the people that you love and care for, because someone will go through stress. I mean, all humans die. That can be really stressful to learn how to manage the power of grief and loss. So these tools can be used in lots of different ways. Um, I also think that for people who are saying I'm fine, a lot of us are actually suppressing or repressing memory and pain, mm. especially women or people who are socially conditioned as, as female, we are taught that we're too much if we are expressing emotion and we are taught to just be fine and it's okay. I can handle it until you can't. Mm -hmm. And so just learning to process that. I mean, I've seen so many women of like, not even middle-aged, but thirties and forties and fifties. And the way that they've learned to handle their stress is to drink wine. Mm -hmm. I just yep. palliated a lovely young woman who went into liver failure because she was drinking wine and all of society tells wow. us, Oh, it's nine o'clock. And mm -hmm. Oh, it's my mom juice. I'm just getting, and it's funny mm -hmm. that women are processing their pain using alcohol and some people drink in moderation, but we now know that there's no safe level of alcohol. So mm -hmm. when you're needing it, and when this is the way that you turn your brain off and this is your coping strategy of choice, which is socially acceptable, maybe it's time to learn it how other ways to manage stress. Yes. Oh, that is mic drop on that one. I'm so glad you touched on that because it, I've noticed yeah. just in my generation, the increasing acceptability of, of drinking every single night to go to sleep. And yeah. I, it's, it's very dangerous. So I'm glad that you mentioned that the studies now show that there's no safe level. Well, and I'm, I'm glad you said dangerous because, um, even though it is dangerous to the mind body system, I always say to the person that I work with in addictions is like, this is the way that you've found to cope mm. with the pain that you're in. Mm. And so I'm so glad that you found something to help you survive. Let's find something new. So it's about that flexibility, right? Yep. Like you found something and that's great. I'm glad you found something. Let's find something that might be healthier for your mind body system. So rather than saying like, oh, oh my God, you've chosen wine and you're drinking how much? Because then you just add shame to the system. Boy. I will say with total compassion, I'm so glad you found something to help you through this. Let's find something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's once again, it's another protective coping mechanism totally. that's, and that's what a lot of these things that we consider quote, bad habits. If I hear that one more time, Oh, I yeah. just have so many bad habits. I'm like, but these are things that helped you get by or helped you suppress to your point. Um, yeah. how much of it is from suppression. So I so much appreciate your perspective and your book is the modern trauma toolkit. And it, where can people find your book and follow you and learn more about what you do? Um, so yeah, the book is available everywhere. Like I was with a big five publisher, so it's in every bookstore it's on Amazon. Um, and interestingly, American Amazon has it on a huge sale right now. Like I think it Great. was $30. So it's like, wow. it's like a third off the price. So it's a huge deal on Amazon. So I don't usually promote Amazon in particular. I'll say, go hit, hit up your local bookstore, but, um, that is a pretty, pretty easy way to find it. Um, my trauma program for organizations is called safer spaces training. Um, so it's just 
that.com as is moderntrauma.com. And I'm at christinegibson.net. I do lots of keynote talks. Um, I just love to talk to people about trauma and toxic stress because I think a lot of us are facing it and we don't know what to do. Yeah. And I, I mean, this could be a three-part interview and I, cause I love to talk about trauma. <laughs> and so I'm, I just appreciate your willingness to come on and just kind of get down to the basics with me to help people understand that there is hope and there's healing yeah. and, and they can learn to support their own unique bodies. So thank you again for coming on and sharing your passion. Oh, I'm so happy to do it, Erin. Thanks for having me. The tiniest spark leads to the biggest blaze. And I hope that today's episode sparks you on a journey to healing and wholeness. Thanks for listening to Sparking Wholeness. For more information on what I do and my coaching programs, or maybe just to reach out and say, hey, find me at sparkingwholeness.com or on Instagram at sparkingwholeness. Have a fabulous week.